You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you've got your Bible, you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> and uh, while you're turning there, uh, let me just first say it's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you, you made it this morning and that you've chosen to come and worship with us. And man, we're just praying that the Lord interacts with you in some deep, meaningful ways today. And uh, let me say a couple of things about today. Today is uh, August the, the 21st, that Sunday. And it's a strategic Sunday, an important Sunday for us for multiple reasons. Um, one reason is because it marks the uh, seven-year kind of history of our church. It's our seventh birthday. So as a church family... We today are seven years old. And as a church, we just have so much to thank the Lord for. I mean, just over and over and over again, he has come into our church family and done miracles for you and I. So it's seven years of the Lord's faithfulness and grace upon our church um, as of today. And secondly, um, that just makes today an important day for us is it is the Sunday that precedes kind of going back into school. So our teachers are gonna be starting back into school. Our, many of our students, our you know, uh, kiddos, all, all the way up through our student ministry, all the way to our um, college students that we have here are all starting school back right now. And so in, in a lot of ways, this Sunday kind of marks the inbreaking of the fall semester. And it kind of is introducing us to the last stretch of 2016. So in light of that, we wanted to take today and the next two Sundays and just have some Sundays where we're re-expressing some of the hopes that we have for our church family. So we're gonna take three Sundays to do that this week and two others. And then in September, we'll start Romans 8 back and finish uh, that chapter. So today we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 12. And again, it would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. Now, let me just kind of take a step back and help you think context of the book of Hebrews for a moment. So when you're thinking the book of Hebrews, it is a book written to a group of young, suffering, persecuted, fragile, weary people. It's a group written to a church that's in that sort of a situation. It's a church full of people who are experiencing loss because they love Jesus. They're not, it's not just loss, it's loss because they actually want to obey and honor and serve Jesus. So it's a church that, that, that's suffering, that, that's persecuted. They're weary, they wanna give up. And, and the point and purpose of the, the book of Hebrews is to write to that church who is discouraged and weary, wanting to give up and to say, don't give up. Whatever you do, don't stop. Don't give up. By, by, by the grace of God, you, you can make it. It's, it's meant to be written to this church as a way to encourage them to impart fresh reminders of the grace of God that can get a church back up and going again. That, that's the point of the book of Hebrews. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 10, that point is in full swing. And, and the, the author of Hebrews, a good pastor, is writing to the church and he just looks at them and says, Christians are not the sort of people who start the race, but then shrink back and quit the race. That is not what Christians are. Christians are the sort of people who start it and who see it through. They don't shrink back, but, but day by day, they put their faith in Jesus and they live by that faith in Jesus. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 11, a very famous chapter. Um, oftentimes called the hall of faith. And in that chapter, the, the author of Hebrews is giving flesh and bones to, to show us what it looks like to live by faith, what it looks like not to shrink back, what it looks like not to give up, but to wake up day in, day out and to run our race well. So he just walks us through examples in the Old Testament of Enoch, of, of Abel, 
of Abraham, of Isaac, of Moses, just one after another. And by the time you get to the end of Hebrews 11, the, the author is making, okay, think big point of Hebrews 11 is, here are people who have run the race before you, that they actually made it, be inspired and encouraged by them. Sub point of Hebrews chapter 11 is the author is trying to show us that those who live by faith in Jesus oftentimes are met with earthly humiliation, not earthly exaltation. Now hear that. He is trying to show us in Hebrews 11. Many times when you live by faith, it is met by earthly humiliation. Like it goes bad for people, not earthly exaltation. So you pick it up in, in verse 35, kind of part B of that verse, and here's what you find. Some who were living by faith in Jesus. I mean, they are waking up today and they are pushing all their chips in again with Jesus. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That is earthly humiliation. That is what living by faith led to for them. And I love that little note in verse 38. He's talking about all these who were cut down on the road of following Jesus. He said, these are men and women of whom the world was not worthy. So he's looking at the church and, you know, he's looking at the church and he's saying, don't give up. Do you see these examples? Even these ones that were met with earthly humiliation, they stuck in there. They didn't shrink back. They woke up the next day and they kept on following Jesus. He's saying, be like that. Let these people inspire you. Then you get to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and he goes on to say, therefore, in light of what we just read in Hebrews 11, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The good pastor of Hebrews, it's as if he bends down and he looks us in the eye and he says, do you see how the baton of faith has been passed from one generation to the next? From Abraham to Isaac, down to Joseph, down to Moses. And now he's saying, do you see how now generation to generation, this is your, your time to take the baton? That this is your moment when the baton of faith is being passed to you. And he's looking at the church and he's saying, this is your moment. This is your time to run the race. It's been run faithfully generation after generation after generation. And now it's your time. It's as if the coach has put you in now. It's in the fourth quarter, you're in. And he's got plays for you to run, so be faithful to it. It's as if the author of Hebrews is looking at us and he's saying, if you have breath in your lungs, if you're breathing right now, if you're alive, your heart is beating. The reason your heart is beating, the reason you're breathing right now is because you have a race to run. That's his point in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. You have a race to run. Everything else clarifies that point. You have a race to run. This is his point. And now you can personalize that. It's not just you, plural, you kind of out there have a race to run. We, we probably all need to have a sense of personalization of this. I have a race to run. I mean, you just need to remind yourself of that this morning. I have a race to run. Now, I'm just praying that those six words, I have a race to run, would work themselves down into our bones this morning. I have a race to run. 
It's as if the author of Hebrews, his intent is to like clear the fog from the purpose of our lives. He's distilling our lives down into this one major ambition. You have a race to run and your ambition, the number one ambition of your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be to run that race well. Now, what does running the, the race well look like? What does that mean? Running well means that we're faithful to Jesus, that in our few short days, we're obedient to Jesus, that, that we're living with the aim of loving and enjoying and bringing glory to Jesus. That is a race well run. That is a life well lived. And, and you know, it's interesting. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul picks up on the same sort of imagery when he's looking back over his life, he's about to die. And he looks back over his life in 2 Timothy 4 and says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what it means to finish the race, to to run your race well. It means that through all the ups and downs of that race, that you have kept the faith, that you have fought the good fight, that you have kept on going, that you haven't shrunk back, that you haven't fallen out of the race, but you have kept one foot after another every day of your life, waking up, putting your faith in Jesus yet again. That is running the race well. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, there's our ambition. This is what your life ought to be about. When you wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, here, here's the ambition. Today, I wanna run the race well. We have a race to run and the goal is to run it well. The rest of this passage clarifies what is, what, what, what is it about the race that we need to know? What does the race look like? What are some of the racing requirements? Let me just kind of work at this passage from three angles. If the point of the passage is we have a race to run and and the goal of our life is to run it well, this passage clarifies some marks of the race. It gives us some of the kind of the racing requirements. And lastly, it gives us the motive to run. So the marks, the requirements, and the motive. So let's start with the marks of the race. Let me just run through these briefly here. We see several marks of the race that the Lord has set before us. So we have a race to run. Our ambition is to run it well. And if we're gonna run it well, we need to know a few things about the race. Here, here, let me just run through four things we need to know about the race. Number one, the race needs community. It's a communal race. And you see this in verse one, let us run. It's not just let you individually run, it's let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that word us is saying something about the race. It is showing us that the race isn't meant to be run alone. It's meant to be run with others. I mean, this is one of the unique things about this race. You aren't running against other people. You're intended by God to run with other people. That is unique about this race. Every other race that you're running, you're probably thinking, how can I outrun the person beside me? In this race, we're all looking at one another and saying, how can we all together get to the finish line? Because we all need each other to get to the finish line. This race isn't meant to be run against others, but with others. It is impossible for you and I to finish this race well, to run our race well, if we have the mindset of we're gonna run it alone. You weren't designed to run this race alone. You were designed to do this in a community of people who are all helping and prodding and poking and pushing and encouraging one another to run it. Now, let me just give you one illustration of like why it is that we need community to run this race well. If you go back to Hebrews chapter three, just flip back a few chapters, the author of Hebrews shows us one reason why it is that you'll never make it on your own, that you need other people to make it in this race. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 and 13 says this. Take care, brothers. So he's saying you need to be watchful. You need to be alert. You need to pay attention to your life. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
saying, take care, pay attention to your life so that you will catch, you will pay attention to, is there an evil, unbelieving heart working itself up out of my life that's going to eliminate me from the race? It's going to sidetrack me. It's going to take, you know, make me take a trail that's, that's off course of this race. Is there something going on in me that's going to eliminate me? Now, how do we take heart? How, how do we pay attention? How do we keep alert to these things? Verse 13 shows us. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you're going to run the race, it means you have to pay attention to yourself. You need to pay attention to, is my heart got some deceit in it? Is it hardening to the Lord? Is it being deceived by sin? And the way that we do that is by putting ourselves in community that will love us, that can speak into our life and exhort us to point things out, to encourage us to run the race well. And that we would be engaged enough in community that when we could encourage other people, we could exhort other people to run that race well. We could help people see when the deceitfulness of sin has grabbed their heart. Do you see that? He's showing us it is impossible to stay away from the deceitfulness of sin apart from community that we're, gonna, we're going to be eliminated from the race unless we get people around us that can speak the truth and love to us, that can exhort us, encourage us. Now, most often at Stonegate, this works itself out in the context of what we just call home groups. We have groups meeting all across the area in homes. And if you wanna know like what one of the purposes are of our home groups, it's to do just that. It's to help one another finish the race well. It's to help one another run this race well to exhort one another, to encourage one another. Now, hear me on this. It is possible to go to a home group and never be in community. So it's not just showing up at a home group that's important. It is you intertwining your life within a group of people where they are exhorting you to live for Jesus and you're exhorting them to live for Jesus, where you're helping them run the race well and they're helping you run the race well. That's what we're going after in the context of a home group. So don't just think I'm gonna show up. Think, man, I'm about to intertwine my life with these people. Now, if you are new to Stonegate today, if this is your first time, one of the first steps forward at Stonegate would be to get your life in intertwined with a group of people in a home group. If you have been here for a while and still haven't jumped into a home group, this would be like the next step for you to get your life intertwined with a group of people that can help you, encourage you to run this race well, because the race needs community. It's one thing we learn about the race here. Secondly, we learned that the race is unique. The race is unique. Although there are commonalities in all of our races, there are some attributes of the race with Jesus that are going to be common to all races. God in his providence has specifically marked twists and turns that your race will uniquely have. So if, if we could just like pry open hearts and lives in this room, here are some of the things that we would see right now in this room. We would see that some people right now are living and their life is just kind of smooth sailing right now. It's going pretty well. There's not like any overt suffering right now in their life. It is going really well for them. And others in the room limped in just barely able to make it this morning because suffering is so real and just oppressive in their life right now. There would be some in the room that this morning you have recently lost your job and there would be others who have recently gotten that job they've always wanted. There's some in the room who your family is intact, it's together and it's going great. You're in a great season with your family. And there are others that it is as if a, just an atomic bomb blew up your family and shrapnel is just everywhere. 
There are some that your relationships are blooming and just doing great in your life right now. And there are others that your relationships are dying and it's so, so painful. Now, this unique race poses a unique temptation that I want you to think through. The, the uniqueness of our individual races, that the Lord has marked out specific twists and turns that are unique to your race that other people may not go through. That uniqueness poses a unique temptation. Unique races tempt us to compare the course the Lord's marked for us to the course he's marked for others. Now just hear that and think on that for a moment. Unique races tempt us to compare the course the Lord's marked for us to the course he has marked for others. We are so prone to look at our life and then to look at other people's lives and to compare them and to think, God, why are you giving them the desires of their heart, but not mine? Why are you giving them that, but you're withholding that from me? God, why are you giving them plenty of money, but for us, man, we're just kind of scrounging by. Why are you letting them be married, but God, I'm still single. Why, why are you giving them kids, but we can't have kids? Why are you giving them th those sort of gifts, but you're not giving us those sort of gifts? Why are you doing those things for them and not for us? Why does their race look like that, but my race looks like this? Why do they have a platform that they kind of are, are known and people kind of, kind of recognize who they are? And I'm just a nobody. Why, why? Why, God? Now that sort of comparison, that unique temptation to compare your race to someone else's race, that, that comparison breeds discontentment in our lives, envy, jealousy, and a slew of other evils in our heart. So we need to pay attention to that. I was just thinking in terms of just that comparison thing. How, do you remember that moment in John, right at the end of the Gospel of John, when the resurrected Jesus comes back to have breakfast with the disciples and he's eating with the disciples and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, Man, the cost of following me, the race that you're on, what I, the, the unique kind of course that I've marked out for you, it's gonna go really bad, Peter. You're gonna lose a lot. It's gonna cost you a lot. You're gonna die a violent death. That, that's the end of your race, Peter. It's coming for you sooner than you would like. And do you remember Peter's response in that moment? Peter looks up and he's like, but hey, there's John. Jesus, let's talk about John for a minute. You see, John, tell me about his race. What, what's that guy gonna get? And, and Jesus looks back at him and he says, Peter, why are you worried about John's race? I'm telling you your race. And, and, and your race is gonna be hard enough for you that you don't need to be worrying about John's race. Your race is gonna keep you busy. It's gonna require every ounce of grace for you to make your race, for you to run your race well. So Peter, stop worrying about his race and run your race. Now, I just wonder how many of us need that corrective voice from the Lord this morning? to stop worrying about their race, to stop comparing yourself to their race, to stop trying to grab for their race and to say to God, thank you for my race. Thank you for the race that you've set out for me. God, by your grace, will you help me be faithful to it? When you're thinking about your unique race, one of the dangers that I just feel for so many of us is that it's so easy to look at your life and to think like this about your life. Is my life really that important? Like, is the race, me being faithful to it, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, it's just little, low, insignificant me and my race, you know? I mean, it's, not, it's really, it's not that big of a deal. Now, think about how this passage is addressing that heart and that tendency we all have to look at our life and to justify not running the race well because our life is really insignificant and it's just not that big of a deal. 
Here is how the, the author of Hebrews is addressing that. Your life is a big deal because God has uniquely designed your race just for you. Like he's uniquely designed it. Ephesians 2.10 says, before you were ever born, the Lord has pre-planned the good works that he has set aside for you to accomplish. Do you know what that means for you and I? There is no such thing as an insignificant life. There's no such thing as a, as a, as a little life that, that, that is worthless. There's no such thing as that. There is only the race that God has set out specifically for you. He didn't plan it for someone else. No one else is going to accomplish it. He has designed you to walk, to walk in those good works. It means that every one of our lives, even when it doesn't feel like it, is significant. When you wake up on Monday morning and you're in the same routine that you've been in for years, and it just seems like you're doing the same thing, Monday is a big deal in the economy of God. He has designed your Monday. He has pre-planned the good works for your Monday so that you then could live that Monday in eager expectation that God has something great for you and your life, something for you to accomplish tomorrow when you wake up. There is no such thing as an insignificant race, an insignificant life. The race is unique. Here's the third thing we learn about the race. The race is long. It's a difficult race. He doesn't just say run the race that's set before you. He says with endurance run the race. Now that word endurance is telling us something about the race. It is telling us that it is a long and difficult race. It is less sprint-like and more marathon-like. But even in the marathon likeness of the race, it, it actually ratchets up another step. It's marathon-like with obstacles just thrown all throughout it called life in a fallen world, right? So it's long, but it's also really hard. It's got all sorts of unique temptations and places for you to stumble, places for you to get off course, places for you to be eliminated along the race. So it's marathon-like with obstacles. The um, old song, Amazing Grace, reminds us of those obstacles. When it says it's only through many dangers, toils, and snares that we arrive home. But there are dangers and toils and snares all throughout the marathon-like race called our life. There's the cliff of temptation. Many people have thrown their life right off the cliff and wrecked it. There's the valley of suffering. It almost killed Job. Do you remember Job's wife, how she responded to it? I mean, they just lost every earthly thing they had. She looks at Job and she's like, why are you being faithful to Jesus? Curse God and die. It's the valley of suffering the choking thorns of money and possessions that just have a way of sucking the spiritual life right out of us, just choking out the spiritual vibrancy in us. Do you remember the rich young ruler when it came down to leaving his wealth so he could follow Jesus? He just couldn't do it. He couldn't walk away from his, you know, his money and possessions, the, the thorns of money and possessions. Along that marathon-like race is the root of bitterness. It's tripped up a many of faithful followers of Jesus. They're hurt by people. They're wounded by people. They have been sinned against by people. And rather than allowing the healing balm of the grace of God to enter into their heart and then be extended to other people, they close themselves off to God in his grace. They stumble along the root of bitterness. There's the quicksand of self-will. 
This is the, the, the sand and the, the trap that our first parents fell into. God had clearly said, don't do that. I have good in my heart for you. And I'm saying out of the goodness of my heart, don't do that. It's gonna kill you if you do that. And they look back up at God and say, I don't care what you want, God. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. It's the quicksand of self-will. Many people have died in that trap of quicksand. There's the poison of busyness. Isn't it ironic that in our doing, many of us are just deadening our hearts to the Lord? So it's a marathon-like race, but it is full of dangers, toils, and snares that will eliminate us along the way of the race. Now, just knowing that, the older that I've gotten, the more I've appreciated not so much the quick starts that people have in their journey with Jesus, but the strong finish they have in their journey with Jesus. You know, I was just thinking um, last night about Dallas Wright. Dallas Wright's sitting right here. He's been a faithful brother, a faithful saint for a long time. And he is, he's on the last kind of home stretch. And I just love learning from people like that who are finishing well, who actually like they're, 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 they're running the race. They're still loving their spouse. They still have a deep and vibrant love for Jesus. I mean, do you know how seldom it is that you find a person in their 70s or 80s that has like a deep, vibrant, zealous love for God? I love that. We have four generations of rights in our church. Isn't that great? I love that. That is the fruit of faithful obedience, not just a start to it, but an end to it. It's endurance. That's perseverance. That's, that's keeping going. That's even in the days that it's hard, it's one step in front of the other, putting your faith in Jesus yet again, living by faith in Jesus yet again. The race is long and difficult. The fourth thing we learn about the race is that the race is runnable. The race is runnable. Now look at, um, look at the first phrase in chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the first thing he tells us about this race. That, that this race has had many people, all these people that therefore links us back to Hebrews 11. The cloud of witnesses is directly pointing us back to Hebrews 11. Now, what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to glean from that first, state, like that first statement? What, what are the cloud of witnesses doing for us? So one thought, you oftentimes would hear this preached in this passage, is that they are like in a coliseum and they are filling the crowd as spectators and they're watching us race and they're cheering us on from the crowd. I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews has in mind. I think the author of Hebrews has in mind here these people are not like presently like looking at our race cheering us on. These people are people that in the past have run with faithfulness. They have run their race well. He is inviting us here to look back at all of these Old Testament stories. Enoch, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, David, all of these Old Testament stories. And here's the point of us looking back at those stories. The point of looking back is he wants to convince us that our race is actually runnable. That when you look at your life right now, the race the Lord has marked out for you, by looking back at all of these Old Testament stories, he wants us to know, regardless of what has been marked out for you, the race that you have uniquely been assigned by the Lord, that race is doable by the grace of God. You can finish that race by the grace of God. See, I think he's trying to counteract what is a natural tendency in the heart of every human being. And here's the natural tendency. It's to look at your race and think, not only is my race unique to me, it is uniquely difficult. And because it is uniquely difficult, there is no way I'm gonna be able to finish that race. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's not true. 
Yes, your, your race is unique to you. Yes, it is uniquely difficult, but let's just take a look back at Hebrews 11. Those brothers finished the race. Those sisters finished the race and their race was uniquely difficult. Their race was uniquely assigned by the Lord. So we are prone to think like this. God, but I have cancer. How could I ever finish the race well? And God is looking at us and saying, do you see Hebrews 11? I know it's hard, but do you see these brothers and sisters who their race was hard and they finished it? But, but God, following you is costing me friendships. People actually hate me because of you. And God is saying, look back at Hebrews 11. Do you see those people there? People hated them. Those guys were sawn in too because they loved me. And you know, what, you know what's crazy about those people in Hebrews? They finished the race. So you can, by my grace, you can finish the race. But God, my race is uniquely difficult. Look back at Hebrews 11. Do you see all of those races? Those races are uniquely difficult. And just like my grace was there every step along the way for them, it's gonna be there every step along for you so that you can finish your race as well. So let's not buy in to the sort of mindset that just gives way to self-pity and looks at God and says, there's no way I could finish this race because it's just too difficult. It's uniquely difficult. It's not uniquely difficult. Thousands and thousands of faithful brothers and faithful sisters have depended upon the grace of God, got up the next day after they have fallen, put one foot in front of the other, pushed their chips in with Jesus again, and Jesus has sustained them. Regardless of how difficult your race is, the author of Hebrews is looking at you and he's saying, it's runnable. By God's grace, it is doable. You, by God's grace and all of your weakness, you can do it. That the grace of God will empower and will enable it. Those are the marks of the race. Now we get to two requirements of the race. The requirements. Two requirements. <clears throat> Requirement number one. You see it in verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. There's requirement number one. If we're gonna run this race well, this is one requirement of running well. We must summarize it by saying this, it's laying aside sin and weights. If we're going to run well, sin has to be laid aside and weights have to be laid aside. So let's just take these in part. We'll take sin first. If we're going to run well, we have to lay aside sin. Now you see what it talks about when it, or what it says about the sin? It says we have to lay aside this sin which clings so closely. Other translations will say that they ensnare us or they entangle us. And maybe you could think about it this way. It's as if sin along this race with Jesus will put you in handcuffs and it's really hard to run in handcuffs. It ensnares you, it entangles you. It makes it impossible to run in the way that God would want you to run. That's what sin is. And the author of Hebrews is saying here, it's impossible to, to run well in the handcuffs of sin. You can't do that. After the first service, I had one of our um, ladies, she's in law enforcement. She came up to me after the service and said, you know what's crazy about like, I've been in law enforcement for a long time. The only people I have ever run down in a foot race, the only people were the people in handcuffs. And I'm like, yes, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying that you will get run down every time if you're in handcuffs. You can't do sin and run faithfully with Jesus. It's impossible. 
It just doesn't work that way. That sin ensnares us. It entangles us. It makes the the run impossible. Now, what the, the author of Hebrews is saying here is really he's just reaffirming what Jesus has already said. In Mark chapter nine, verses 45 through 47, listen to how Jesus says it. He says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than, to, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. That's some pretty graphic and gory and abrupt words, isn't it? Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now, what is Jesus's point here? If I were summarizing the point, I would say it this way. Jesus is saying it's better to limp into heaven with one eye than to run into hell with both. That's the point. I mean, he is using graphic and and abrasive imagery to say you cannot run this race and coddle and kind of cuddle with your sin at the same time. Your sin has to be looked at and laid aside. It has to be cut out. It has to be left. It has to be turned from. You you can't have that and faithfulness to Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. It's an either or proposition. It's either you keep your sin and and you can't be faithful or it's you faithfully run your race and you lay aside your sin. Now, I just wonder in this room, what sin we need to lay aside to be faithful to the race the Lord has called us to. And maybe you could just open up your heart right now to the Lord and just ask God, by the power of the Spirit, God, would you just show me what, what areas of sin need to be laid aside in my life, need to be turned from right now in my life? So one category of laying aside is sin. The other category that we need to lay aside is called weights. It says, let us lay aside every weight. Now, when you're thinking about the category of sin and the category of weight, they are different categories of things. Where, where the category of sin is a more obvious category, it's like anything that would be outside the will of God. The category of weights is a less obvious category. So what, what is a weight? Here, here's a, if you want a kind of a working definition of a weight, here's what a weight is. Weights are those things that diminish your desire for Jesus. A weight is anything in your life that would diminish your desire for Jesus. So if it has the end effect of decreasing your desire for Jesus, that would be a weight in your life. That's gonna be a thing in your life, although it's morally neutral. It's not necessarily a sin. It's going to be a thing in your life that keeps you from running well. I mean, we've been watching the Olympics, right? Unless you've been under a rock, you've been watching the Olympics. And just imagine the moment of you watching a guy come out to run the 400 meters. He comes out onto the track and rather than being stripped down to just the bare essentials, this guy has like a tuxedo on. He's got about a 40 pound backpack on. I mean, what would you think if he's about to bend down and he's about to start and run the race? You would be thinking, man, the guy's in the race, but he is not in the race. He's not, he's not, his aim is not to win the race. That is not what he is after. And in the same way, if we have in our life things that are keeping us from running the race that Jesus has marked out for us, if we have those things in our life, it is not helping us run the the race. It's a weight in our life that needs to be laid aside. Now, when it comes to running you know, well for Jesus. Part of what that means is we have to learn a new category of question. Here is one category of question that many of us probably know that, uh, that is a well-worn kind of line of questioning, that it's a good line, but we just have to know more than this line. So one line of questioning is, is this thing sinful for me? 
Would it be sin for me to do this? This is one way we can think about decisions in our life, just the whole range of decisions. Would this be sinful or not for me to do it? Okay, that's a helpful line of questioning. But if your line of questioning stops there, you will never run the race that Jesus has marked out for you with effectiveness. You'll never do it. We have to learn a new line of questioning that goes like this. Would me doing this increase my desire for Jesus or diminish my desire for Jesus? Would this thing in front of me, this option in front of me, this choice in front of me, would it feed and stoke and increase my desire for Jesus or would it decrease and diminish my desire for Jesus? So should I go there? Should I do that? Should I drink that? Should I eat that? Should I listen to this? Should I watch? You just name the decision. Would this increase my desire for Jesus or diminish my desire for Jesus? Until we start asking that question about everything in our life, it will be impossible for us to run well. We're gonna have the tuxedo on and the 40 pound backpack on thinking we're actually gonna be competitive in the race, thinking we're gonna actually run the race well and we're just not. Now, let me just personally apply this in a few ways that this has landed on me. This question, does it feed my desire for Jesus or diminish them? Um, Just think about this in terms of TV. This has been one of the places that the Lord has just been after me right now. And think about your nightly routine. It is very common for me, I don't know if it is for you, to have like a winding down, maybe hour of TV in the evening. Is that a sin? I don't think that would be sinful. But is that stoking and feeding desires and ambitions for Jesus? That's the question that needs to be answered. And if it's not, it's a weight that needs to be laid aside in our life. Um, Here's another one that's been really painful for me here lately too. Um, Think about technology, in particular your phone. Maybe it's your iPad, maybe it's your computer, but just technology in general. If you're anything like me, when you wake up in the morning, all the way from like the moment you take like your first, like you look and you like take in the first moment of the day to the moment where you close your eyes at night, it is as if my phone has this seductive voice built into it that is just saying, please put in your little password and come and check me out. I don't know if your phone talks to you like that. My phone talks to me like, it's the weirdest thing. It's like, please come and check that newsfeed for the 10,000th time today. You might be missing something between the last time, the two minutes ago that you checked it and now. And if you don't have that, then you can go to Twitter and then you can go to Facebook and then you can go to Instagram. And it's just on and on this seductive voice every little minute of the day saying, come and check me out. Now, is that sinful? Probably not. But does it feed and stoke and put in me deeper desires for Jesus? That's the question that needs to be asked. Um, I'll never forget this time. It's probably four or five years ago. Kevin Jones and I were, uh, I can't remember even what we were doing. We were listening to something. Some guy was kind of talking about something. And I'm just in a mindless daze looking at my phone. I don't even know what I was reading. I'm just... The seductive voice was whispering and I was obeying in that moment. And I've just got my head down. I'm just reading something. And all of a sudden I get a text message from Kevin Jones. And it's a quote from one of our favorite pastors. And the quote said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I'm like, Kevin Jones, you better never send that ever again, right? I mean, it's like a dagger to the soul. Wow. And it's like, that's so true though, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how many weights we put on ourselves, just distractions in our life that are keeping us from running the race that has been set before us. And until we get serious, not just about the sin in our life, but about the weights in our life, we're never going to run well for Jesus. 
It's never going to happen. So maybe you could just be asking now, God, what are the weights in my life? They're not necessarily morally evil things. They're not necessarily sinful things. They're just things that diminish my desire and ambitions and hope in you. And part of what it means to run faithfully is that we lay those things down. So he says, here's one requirement. We have to lay aside weights and sin. Here's the other requirement. We have to look to Jesus. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. It is laying aside weights and sins and it's looking to Jesus. You see it in verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the rhythm. We're laying aside and we're looking to Jesus. We're laying aside, we're looking to Jesus. We're laying aside and we're looking to Jesus. And he gives us two things that we can see about Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. You could think of it in these two categories. He is both our hero and he's our hope. He is our hero. He's the author of our faith. He is the pioneer, the trailblazer of our faith. Jesus is the one who took out the machete and he blazed the trail through, through the jungle of sin and evil in this kind of fallen world. He has shown us what it looks like to perfectly live in obedience to God the Father, regardless of the cost, regardless of what, it, what he loses along the way. He has shown us what faithful obedience to, Jesus, or to, to God the Father looks like, what it means to run that race well. Even more than the people of Hebrews 11, Jesus is the one we can look at as our hero and say, that's the model. That's the example. He's the hero that has perfectly showed us what living by faith, what, what faithful endurance looks like, what running the race well looks like. He's the one that we can look at to see that. He's the hero, but he's not just the hero. He's also our hope. He is the one we can look at and know he has faithfully lived that race on our behalf. He has perfectly fulfilled every last command of God so that we have a way of approaching God as we fail. He has died the death that we should have died. He took our place for our sin. God the Father's wrath came crashing down on him for all of our sin. Now his, the, God the Father's perfect warm affection now comes to us because of the perfect life that Jesus lives. He is both our hero and he is our hope. And if we're gonna live well, we've gotta look at Jesus as both of those two things, both hero and our hope. As we looked at Jesus as our hero, it keeps us from growing content in our sin. When we look at Jesus as our hero, he is showing us what life by the grace of God could be for us. So, so as our hero, he keeps us from being content in our sin. But looking to Jesus as our hope keeps us from looking upon ourselves with contempt. It keeps us out of self-pity. So, so looking to Jesus as our hero shows us what we could be. Looking to Jesus as our hope provides the grace we need to get there, to get where we need to be, to get there, to, to become what we could be. Jesus as our hope provides the grace that we need when we fall, when we fail, which we all will, when we find ourselves not even thinking about the race. Jesus as our hope gives us the grace that we need to get back on the, the track to get back in the race, one foot in front of another and to keep enduring. We have to see Jesus as both our hero and our hope. And here's the last thing, the motives for the race, the motives. I wanna read verse two for you and let you just ask yourself the question, what was Jesus's motive? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus run a faithful race? Looking to Jesus, verse two, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the motive? What keeps Jesus going 
is the joy he sees beyond his earthly life. When he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that's the place of honor. That's the place of exaltation, of glory, of ultimate power, authority. That's the place that he's looking to. He is looking beyond his life to the joy that is to come for him. This is his motive. This is what kept him going on the dark and hard days. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he had plenty of those dark and hard days, but he's looking beyond those dark and hard days to the joy that's awaiting him, to the joy that's beyond those dark and hard days. You know, and commentators are quick to pick up on on that word despise. Do you see that there in verse two? Despising the shame. That word despise can be used in two ways. One way that you can use the word despise is to use it in a way that's saying, I hate that thing, I despise it. Now, another way that you can use that same word despise is in a comparative sense. So in that way, you can define it like this. To despise something means to consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when measured or evaluated against something else. Now, that's the way it's used in this passage. To consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against something else. Just think about how it plays out. You're in a moment and you have just lost thing X. Like thing X was in your hand, but you lost it. It's gone, never to come back. But at the same time, you gained thing Y. And, and, and the gain of thing Y is so great and so grand that it makes you not even think about the loss of thing X. Do you see that? Th- that's the word despise. When something is so great that when you measure it against something else over here, this thing over here doesn't even fit onto the scale. It it doesn't even factor into your way of thinking. This is what Jesus is saying here, that the joy that was set before him was so great that he despised the shame of the cross, that he considers the shame and humiliation of the cross as not even something to be considered. Maybe you could think of it this way. For Jesus, when measured against the gain of the cross, the pain, the agony, and humiliation of the cross seemed of little significance to him. Say it this way, the joy at the end of the race for Jesus made the agony in the middle of the race seem small and light. Now we have seen this. If you've been watching the Olympics, you have seen this. Yesterday, I watched this triathlon and an American lady won the ladies triathlon. And now, I mean, a triathlon is a grueling event. I mean, that's three really hard sports going for a really long time. And it was so interesting to watch her face literally five steps before the finish line. I mean, it's just that look of death. You can just tell it's pain and agony just written all over her face. And then she hits the finish line. She breaks the tape. And it is as if like in a, I mean, just in a moment, what was pain and agony turns into just sheer uncontainable joy. That's the power of the joy that is beyond our life. When you hit the tape of that finish line, Jesus is saying it's made all the agony of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, the pain of the cross, it's made it all go away. It's made it seem like it didn't even happen to me. Now, I just wonder how many of us need to hear that so badly this morning, that our future with Jesus is so bright that it can make even a crucifixion seem light and insignificant. that your future, if you're in Jesus, is so bright that it can make the pain, agony, and shame of a crucifixion seem insignificant in light. Is that not amazing? That's the sort of incredibly bright future that we have in front of us. 
Now, what is that incredibly bright future? What, what is promised here? What, what is the joy that is set before us? Answer, it's eternal life with Jesus. It's the promise that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where everything broken will be fixed, everything wrong will be righted, everything crooked will be made straight. The new heavens and the new earth, I love to think of it this way. It will be complete with everything a human being just like you needs to flourish for all eternity. Everything you need to be everything God's designed you to be, all of that stuff will be packed into the new heavens and new earth and you'll flourish for all eternity. I I love how Paul talks about this in Romans 8.18. He uses the word glory to talk about it. The word glory is his way of talking about this incredibly bright future in front of us. And Paul, who has suffered greatly, says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying, when I think about what's to come and I think about what I'm enduring now, what I'm enduring now, beatings, shipwrecks, being stoned to death, what I'm enduring now, it just doesn't seem that big of a deal. I mean, it just feels really light and insignificant in comparison to what is coming for us. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews here, they're all Paul, they're all reminding us of that incredibly bright future that motivates us to get up even after we have failed, to get up after we have stumbled, to get up after we've taken a detour and to get back on the race, to endure, to keep on going, to keep one foot in front of another, pushing in our chips with Jesus. They're all trying to encourage us and saying, the joy that is set before you is going to make it all worth it. Every every loss that you experience now will be made worth it in the end. Like when you break through the tape of the finish line of this race, your first view into the promised land of eternity with Jesus, your first view is going to make everything you have suffered a loss of, everything that you have given up, it's going to make it feel light and insignificant. There's going to be so much pleasure in that moment, you're going to forget all of those sufferings. Isn't it amazing uh, just the, the idea of labor and delivery? For, for my wife, I have never seen a human being in so much agony and pain. I mean, it was crazy. And in an instant, she's holding a little baby and it was amazing how agony and pain broke into joy and weeping, just tears of joy. And this is what he's saying here. The author of Hebrews is saying, when you break the tape of this race, all of your suffering, all of your loss, all of your agony, it's all going to give way to tears of joy as you hold the prize in your hand, namely Jesus. I'll finish with this thought. I was talking to a guy here recently and we were just talking about this idea of like how much we are growing to appreciate not just good starts, but great finishes. And so, you know, he was just talking about, he's kind of made it his ambition to learn from people who are older in the faith, saints who have gone before him, who are in the last leg of their race. And he was talking about one old seminary professor that he had and uh, a guy that mentored him for a while that he just deeply loved. And at one point he looked at him and just said, man, I'm a young Christian. You have been doing this for a long time. How do I make it? how do I make it? And this old saint looked at him and said, well, I'll tell you how I make it. Every single day of my life, I take a walk. And on that walk, I think about one thing. Every time I walk, here's the one thing that I think about. It's the word glory. Every day I'm thinking about the joy that's set before me. Every day I'm thinking about what is it going to feel like and look like when I break the tape of this race and I breathe in air from the new heavens and the new earth. Man, what's that going to be like? 
And if we want to run faithful with Jesus, here's the one thing we need to take a walk every day and think about. Glory. What is that moment going to be like? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. And You know, and I know that there's just many in the room who you came in here and you just, everything in you wants to quit. You're weary, you're tired. The race has been so hard. Just let the good pastor of Hebrews encourage you. Just listen to him, encourage you to not give up. Keep laying aside, keep looking to Jesus, keep laying aside, keep looking to Jesus. Don't stop. Today, one foot in front of the other, Today, each and every breath expressing faith in Jesus, re-pushing your chips in yet again with Jesus. Looking, looking down the road to the joy that's set before you. That the sort of joy that's going to allow you to despise every little moment of suffering, to make, to make it just feel light and insignificant. And I'm just praying today that the Lord would put in us the single-minded ambition to run our race well. Loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, bringing honor and glory to Jesus, enjoying Jesus. That one day when we end, we could say, gosh, with all of my heart, I love Jesus. And, and can I tell you why it's important that we get that today? This race is less like running on a track and more like running cross country. So the Lord marks our path and our path goes into certain areas. And it's not like you're gonna to, to loop around and find this area again. The, the window of opportunities and, and this race close on us. So, so the Lord leads us to this path and he's given us our moment, our, our, our moment in time. We, we've taken the baton and this is our moment to run the race with faithfulness to accomplish the good works that he has pre-planned for us. But it's not like you, you're gonna have the chance in a year from then, in two years, it, it's a cross country. You're gonna get there one time, the window opens and the Lord says, this is your moment, take it. And then it closes and we keep moving. And the reason it's so important for us right now to just resolve, man, whatever it takes, I'm gonna run this race well right now is because you don't get today back. You're not going to get tomorrow back. You're not going to get this week back. You're not going to get this year back. God has sovereignly planned our race. As a church family, may we run this race well. And for those that are in the room that need to meet Jesus, here's how the race starts for us. The race starts for every follower of Jesus in the moment where Jesus rescues us. The moment we hold up our life and say, God, I am all yours. The moment we come with the empty hands of faith, turning from our sin, throwing our life upon the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's in that moment that the Lord welcomes us in. It's in that moment that the Lord rescues us and starts us to running. And if that's you today, if if this is your day, this is the moment when you need to take that decisive step, pushing your chips in with Jesus for the very first time. Man, we want you to do that. And you do that by holding up your life to Jesus, saying, God, will you save me? Will you rescue me? And if that's you, make sure you fill that card out underneath your seat. Check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. So Father, would you help us? God, will you put in the heart of this church family a desire to run our race well for your sake? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.